A few weeks ago, I, uh, I read, uh, well, actually, a few weeks ago, I just read it this week, but a few weeks ago, uh, Yale's happiness professor. Did you know there was such a thing? Uh, Yale's happiness professor, a prestigious university there, um, Dr. Lori Santos, said, there's a lot of evidence that religious people are happier in a sense of life satisfaction and positive emotion in the moment. That's pretty impressive to hear someone at uh, an Ivy League prestigious university say something positive about religion. I don't know about you, but I am I'm reluctant to even use the word religion. You know, for many years we have talked about, uh, and you have heard people say, you know, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And uh, people for uh, decades have been saying things like, you know, I'm okay with worship and spirituality, but I don't like organized religion. Uh, so I, can, I tend to shy away from that word. It seems to have this sense of kind of empty rituals or self-righteous do-gooders, things like that, that, that I, I don't want to be nor be associated with. But as we come to God's Word today, in James chapter 1, we're just looking at verses 26 and 27, as we continue our study of uh, listening and living, listening carefully and living confidently, we see a positive uh, view of religion. James uses the word a couple of times, and he has good things to say. And in fact, if we look at, listen carefully to what James is saying, we will find that it lines up in surprising ways with what Dr. Santos a happiness professor has said. And by the way, her class is one of the most popular classes on that campus year after year. And she has some, a very popular podcast. And, and there's a reason. Because what she says lines up with what God says, with the truth. If we really listen carefully to James here, would you read with me James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 of God's holy, inspired, infallible, life-transforming word. James 1, 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is God's word. Father, would you meet us here today? May these words be more than ink on paper, pixels on our screens, sound waves hitting our eardrums, may they be what you intend them to be. Life and truth and hope, transforming us as we come to your word in the name of Jesus and trusting in your spirit to work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Immediately after making that comment about uh, that positive statement about religion, 
in the interview I was reading by Dr. Santos, she asked this, this rhetorical question because she's going to answer it. But she says, uh, there's a lot of evidence that religious people are happier. But, and here's the question, is it the Christian who really believes in Jesus and reads the Bible? Or is it the Christian who goes to church, goes to the spaghetti suppers? I don't know what her background is. But I don't, I'm not familiar with spaghetti suppers, but apparently some people do that. Uh, maybe she means potlucks or whatever. So is it the Christian who goes to church, goes to the spaghetti suppers, donates to charity, participates in the volunteer stuff? So how would you answer that question? Uh, is it the Christian who really believes in Jesus and reads the Bible, or is it the Christian who goes to church and does the, the fellowshipy things, the serving things, and all those kind of things, the giving things, the worshipy things? Is it the beliefs or the actions that lead to this greater sense of happiness, uh, this evidence, scientific research evidence, that religious people are happier? What do, you, what do you think? Belief or action? Yeah. yeah. Is it even a choice? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll unpack that in a second, but here's what she says. It turns out, this is the happiness professor, it turns out to the extent that you can disentangle these two, the beliefs and the actions, it seems to not be our beliefs but our actions that are driving the fact that religious people are happier. I'm not sure the methodology they use to determine that, but it's, it's research and those kind of things. But what I hear when she says that, and what I wonder if you hear too, as she says, it's the actions that are driving the fact that religious people are happier. What I hear is an echo or a paraphrase of James 1, to 25. Pastor Dave dug into last week of being not just a hearer of the word, but a effectual doer of the word. That sense of, you know, you prove yourself a doer of the word and not merely a hearer. Otherwise, you're deluding yourself, James 1.22 says. Dr. Santos un unpacks a little more. and she says, It's critical to discern that, the, the evidence, because it tells us if you can get yourself to do it, to meditate, to volunteer, to engage with social connection, you will be happier. That echoes James 1.25. A forgetful hearer, don't be that. Be an effectual doer who's blessed in what he does. You could kind of read James saying you're blessed in your doing as you will be better off. It's a stretch to say happier but in the way that actually she's using that word, it is kind of happier. It's a sense of contentment and fulfillment despite whatever's going on around you. That's, that's what's going on in James. But notice what she said, and, and we'll move on from her in a minute, but look. She says, the evidence tells us that if you can get yourself to do it, to meditate, volunteer, engage, all, and do all the religious acts, right? If you can get yourself to do it, you'll be happier. How's that work for you? Do you not know some things will be good for you and you not do them? Or do you know some things will more likely be bad for you and you do them anyway? Does anyone eat ice cream like almost every night, right? Is that good for you? Does anyone know you should go exercise and instead you sit down on the couch and 
binge watch something again that's like not even that good, but man, it just pops up and you hit the next one and the next one, right? We know, but somehow we don't quite do. And in fact, the happiness professor, one of the, her great appeals is, is her honesty on this topic. And her, her discussion of what actually helps us to do what is right. She talks about her own uh, desire to come home, knowing that the data says she'll be happier if she works out or calls a friend, but instead she sits there and watches Netflix TV shows. You know, and she describes it as intuition. This uh, thing you don't get naturally. We have this strong intuition, she says, about the things that will make us happy, and we use those intuitions to go after that stuff, whether it's more money or changing circumstances or buying the new iPhone, but a lot of those intuitions the science shows are not exactly right or are deeply misguided. That's why we get it wrong. I know this stuff, but my instincts, or she said a minute ago, intuition, are totally wrong. You're probably like, why are you quoting this thing? Why are you talking so much about this professor? Because I get really excited and so fired up when I hear people who don't know Jesus demonstrate to us the truth of God's word, even when they don't realize it, even when they use the wrong words. Instead of intuition and instincts, it's my fallen human nature and my desires that battle within me, that I know the good that I would do, but I don't do it. Instead, I do the bad. She's describing a biblical worldview and doesn't know it. But James knows it. And James gets right down to the reality for us. The false dichotomy, the false choice she presented is, is just that. It's not the beliefs or the actions. It's the actions that flow from a sincere belief. It is the faith that leads to works. That's James' whole point. Right? If you have a dead faith, you don't have faith. If it's not flowing forth in works, you don't actually believe. That doesn't mean perfect works. That doesn't mean overflowing, bubbly, happy, Pollyanna, it's all great works. It means that if you believe, if you sincerely understand what the Scripture says, what Jesus has done, who God is, who you are, and how it all comes together, if you're growing in understanding that, it will impact your life and you will live differently and you will be happier, more content, fulfilled, those kind of things. In other words, okay, all this to say, good religion actually does exist. The science from the happiness professor says so. Good religion does exist. It's doing good from a good heart for a good God. The kind of doing good that flows from true faith, that's the good version of religion. Maybe we should rehabilitate that word and clarify it. It would be flowing from a good heart. That good heart only comes as we understand God's word, as we are born again, as we are transformed from the inside out, as we receive, James said a little while ago, the implanted word. As we are transformed from the inside out, 
that we are not deceived, that we are growing in awareness that, you know what, maybe what my desires tell me to do aren't actually good. How did she put it? They're, they're, they're not exactly right or are deeply misguided. Do you have any deeply misguided desires? Yeah. All the time, right? Even though we know the truth. And so what do we do in this circumstance? How do we come to terms with it? James gives us a, a billboard, actually, for what's coming in the rest of his letter. This is the wrap-up of the introductory part, you know, where he kept going back and forth between, you know, let us and if one does, to now, hey, you do, you that, right? And so this passage actually kind of unpacks to the overall rest of James. So this is going to be an introduction to the themes that we will spend time on, Lord willing, in the coming weeks. In other words, James shows us here in these couple verses, he highlights uh, a three-dimensional view of good religion. What makes for doing good, what makes for happiness. And the first dimension is this. It's about yourself. Self. Control your tongue. That's the first dimension is yourself. Really, this is about an honest focus on ourselves. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, that man's religion is worthless. He says, if he does not bridle his tongue, that's, that's a, a metaphor from the, the apparatus that you put in a horse's mouth and around his head, right? And the reins and everything that you, know, you, you bridle, you, you, you control the horse where it will go, because you steer the head, the rest of the body follows, right? In fact, James will unpack this topic in 3, 1 to 12, which we'll get to in a few weeks. Uh, he speaks of, again, for we all stumble, chapter 3, verse 2, we stumble, we trip, we lose our footing. In many ways, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well, not just the tongue. Do you see what he's saying there? If you, can, if you do not stumble or fall in what comes out of your mouth, you are able to bridle your whole body as well and control where it goes. So is he saying the tongue then? If you get control of your tongue, then the rest of your life is just perfect? Is it like tongue and then everything else? No, it's, it's, he's essentially saying it is so hard to control what comes out of our mouths that if we were able to do that, we would already then have become the kind of person who controls everything else about themselves. That if we can win the battle with our tongues and what comes out or what doesn't come out, if we can win that battle, we will win every other battle in our lives and gain victory over every other temptation. So the cause and effect is actually that deeper transformation that needs to happen leads to self-control in the tongue, would also lead to self-control of other desires. Does that make sense? It's that important. And, and the tongue is that much of, of a litmus test. In other words, pardon the pun, 
James views the use of our tongue as a leading indicator of our hearts, of how well we lead ourselves in the rest of our lives. If you can gain more control of your tongue, you're going to see fruit in other areas of your life. I'm not sure what's going on with that. This really, as James often does, right, it echoes Jesus. And the things Jesus says in the Gospels, for example, in Matthew 15, 18, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. Out of our heart come those things. And so a lot of them come out verbally. All, they come out in other ways as well. But what James says here is if, if you want to practice a true religion, if you want to find contentment, start by gaining some control over yourself. Gain some awareness about your life. Especially just maybe focus on what's coming out of your mouth. The words that you use. And if you can gain control there, do you realize you will help your own reputation? I love this proverb, right? I've made a living on this proverb. Even when you keep your mouth shut, you're deemed, you look intelligent. Do you see that? I made it. Yeah, it's a joke. It's a bad joke. But uh, if, you, if you don't even say anything, people begin to think, hey. if you don't say anything and you have a beard and you go like this, hmm. People be like, yeah, he's smart. Try it. I mean, maybe you can't grow a beard. I know, but like, when somebody says something, just hmm. It has a great benefit, too, because like you get in the habit, then just stuff doesn't come out instinctively. It's part of you know, a filter, part of considering what we say. You know, that, that kind of awareness is what Proverbs are all about. Gaining control of your tongue will lead to deeper connections with other people. Because it means you will be less boastful and bragging and less likely to slander and gossip, which is always good for relationships. If you gain control of your tongue, you will more likely to be speaking encouraging things, uplifting things, helpful and hopeful things, rather than complaining things. If you gain control of your tongue, you are more likely to be able to hear what other people are saying, actually saying. And if you add in a, hmm, chin stroke once in a while, you might actually reflect on what they're saying. And before you launch into misunderstanding what they're saying, you might actually be able to respond. You might actually grow. In other words, there's a humility element as we begin to practice especially controlling our tongue, it will humble us. James says it there in chapter 3, right? You cannot tame your tongue. If you were able to, you would be perfect in every other way. So that doesn't mean give up. That means humble yourself. 
and acknowledge that. And see what the Lord does as you continue to pay attention to that. And in a sense, I would say that's the first point, right? That's the first dimension. That gain is self-awareness. Pay attention to your words. Think about what you're going to say. Try listening a little longer. And if you can't do that, don't give up. Take that opportunity to prayerfully consider what is going on. What is the deeper thing that has me saying these things that drive people away? That cause people to be angry? What is going on in me? Dig deeper in that. And you'll find as you kind of identify those roots, you'll see, yeah, it's not just, I, that's not just a pattern coming out of my mouth. It's things that come out of my life that I'm just generally dissatisfied and so I complain. Or I'm generally jealous and envious. So I slander and gossip. I'm insecure. Consider those things. What's going on in there? Rather than just let anything and everything out of your mouth. That's the first dimension. The second dimension. There's self typified by controlling your tongue. Then there's other. Other concern for the needy is what James talks about here and then he'll hit again in chapter 2 14 to 26 and this is really about paying attention to the needs of others look at verse 27 pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit the orphans and widows in their distress and the sense of visiting is to make a careful inspection to look at examine uh, pay attention to, or to see someone, to go to someone with a helpful intent. You, know, you see this in the early church. They, uh, in Acts chapter 6, were charged with, hey, inspect yourselves. Look among yourselves to find uh, some godly men who will essentially become deacons. The beginning of Acts chapter 6, right? Verse 3 in particular. Moses, we read in Acts chapter 7, went out to visit the people from Pharaoh's house. He went out to see how they were doing. Paul, in Acts 15, proposed to Barnabas, and this led to their split, but they proposed, uh, Paul proposed that they go visit the churches that they planted to see how they were doing. To go there not to say, hey guys, it's me, remember? I started this church and... Aren't you glad to see me? But to go and say, how are you guys doing? What do you need from me? How can we build you up? How can we use our gifts to serve you? Jesus used this word to speak of in Matthew 25, that great judgment when He divides the sheep and the goats, when He says to some, the sheep's come, enter in to the inheritance prepared by My Father, and to the goats, go away to your eternal punishment and doom. Jesus used this word to speak of Matthew 25, 36, the good religion. Those who had visited me when I was sick. Those, he says in Matthew 25, 43, who did not clothe me or when I was sick or in prison did not visit me. The sense there is that if you know Jesus, 
if you love Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus, it will lead to these kind of works. It will lead to concern for others, especially the most vulnerable and needy, which in the Bible are typically orphans and widows. But there's all kinds of needy, broken people in our world, right? It's not just the poor, but they are needy. It's not just the orphans and the widows, but they are needy. It is those who don't know. Those who are foolish. Those who don't know the truth of the Gospel. Those who keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. These, as well, are people we should be concerned about. Certainly not condemn and judge because they're not like us. Because they haven't been smart enough to choose Jesus. Because it's not even about intelligence. You know, we've been talking with the, the youth about healthy relationships and dealing with conflict, and we talked a couple weeks ago about overlooking offenses and you know, these minor things people do, how we can learn to just really let that go. And when should we not let that happen? And one of the things that's helpful in that discussion is to understand empathy, which is kind of a step toward charitable uh, thoughts and intentions. You know, what, what could have led this person to do that? Those kind of questions. What are they going through that they would lash out at me? And I'll tell you what, over the last two years, we've had plenty of opportunities to see all kinds of emotions one way or another, right? And more often than not, it's not really been about you when someone has sinned against you. People are under stress. You know, the school boards and leaders and all type, people just wail on them. Criticism. It's about where people are. Growing in empathy and understanding. This doesn't say it's okay, right? That's very different. It doesn't excuse the actions, but to help you understand it, and, and then you can maybe overlook, or you can deal with it in a constructive way if that's necessary. It's the second dimension, just paying attention to other people. Starting with, hey, what's going on with me and gain the self-awareness, then moving outwardly of looking at other people. You know, <laughs> we were talking about gas prices the other day and how they just shot up. Is it not insane? Uh, the gas station, the cheap gas station we go to um, in Drexel Hill, we pass by it all the time. It's, it's almost always the cheapest. Uh, it, it had jumped like 60 or 70 cents a gallon. In, in just like a day or two. And uh, I'm like, that is crazy. And then my wife said, yeah, you know, at least though we're not like in a subway tunnel hiding from bombs and tanks. Wow, that changes my attitude about high gas prices. I still don't like them. But to understand this is part of things that are happening right now. 
In other words, you know, it's not just about me and what I have to pay for gas. There are circumstances going on in the world around me. And you know what? That's so very true, not just if you think globally with the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, but you just think like in our community or in your neighborhood or in your family, in our church, like to gain that perspective of concern for others. Empathy. Getting outside of ourselves even as we try to gain control of ourselves to develop this concern for others. And then if we couple with that, the third dimension. So we've had self and controlling the tongue as an example. Now we have others with concern for the poor, especially the widows and orphans. And now the last item, this last dimension is God, that we would choose the Lord. And the order is probably this one first. But as you walk through the text, this actually shows up last. Look at verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This word unstained means uh, without defect or spotless when you talk about a lamb to be offered as a sacrifice. It means uh, without fault or pure morally when you talk about character. It's the negative of a word that can mean spot or a verb, uh, related verb that can mean stained or, or defiled. So it says unstained. James uses the stained word in chapter 3 verse 6 when he says the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles, stains, corrupts the entire body, sets on fire the course of our life, and is itself set on fire by hell. That's, that's your tongue, yeah. That's my tongue. Jesus in Matthew 15, when he's speaking of the heart and the things that come from the heart, he's making the point that it's not the stuff that comes into you, it's not your religious practices. It's not that you would keep yourself from the world, that the world is the problem. The problem is that you just take the stuff into your heart and then it comes out of you. That's the sense James is using here that it is out of our hearts that this junk comes. And so... To be unstained by the world is to say, don't let the world change your heart. That's the language of affection, of priorities, of love, of treasure. Where's your treasure? Of value. What do you value? What's most important? In other words, this is the language of saying, I will choose the Lord over everything else, it is the language of priorities, of bringing God into all of life. You know that because when James talks some more about this in James 3, 13 through 5, 6, which is the biggest chunk of his letter dealing with these three dimensions, he speaks of the world in James chapter 4, verse 4. And he uses the language of friendship and hostility or enmity and adultery 
James 4.4, you adulteresses. He's, he's using the feminine there most likely because of the language of the people of God in Old Testament days in the Hebrew. Speaking of the nation, the word Israel was a feminine noun and the people would be characterized that way. Uh, it, you adulteresses, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The word for friendship here is, is the word uh, that we get Philadelphia from, the city of brotherly love. Yeah, so that's nice. Uh, Adelphos is brother. That part is the love. So this is the brotherly love, right? The love in Philadelphia, the word, not the place. Different conversation altogether about the love in Philadelphia. Uh, friendship, philia, is a word of affection. Some of the related words are, are translated as kiss, as in greet one another with a holy kiss. That there, there's, it's a sign of affection outward display, but it's, it's an it's a inward reality, right? That, that's so distinct, that's so close. Like if you, you you're, you're not going to greet someone with, you know, a hug who you don't really like, right? Who do you hug? Who, who, who would you just embrace and not want to let go of, you know? That's the sense here. Don't be that in love with the world. Don't go hugging the world. You know, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the Word and, and receiving it, welcoming it into your house. That's the hug, right? The hug goes to God and to, to His Word. To find that as your priority and your value, your deepest love and affection, to be growing in that. To live for Him. That's, that's going to come only from what? A heart that is undefiled. A heart that is unstained. A heart that is pure. That is cleansed. A heart that's not natural. It's not something you can drum up. It's something that is given. And as you put these three dimensions together, right? Of, of self and other and God. Right, you see in every one of them you can't do it. You can't control your tongue. And James says, no man can control his tongue. But if you want to be religious, control your tongue. You're adulteresses. You can't love the world. But if you want your religion to be good, love the Lord and not the world. We can't do these things naturally. So what do we need? Is there no hope? Yeah. Right, remember, I haven't mentioned this in a couple weeks. James is a short letter. And you get beat up, boom, boom. You know, he's telling you all these things to do, and you're like, oh, you could be all moralistic, legalistic, checklistic. Right, And then you get to chapter 4. And he goes to the heart and he says, you know, what causes fights and quarrels? It's your desires. 
We covet to kill. You don't have because you don't ask. And then we do ask. You ask with the wrong motives. To spend it on your own pleasures. Boom, boom, boom. It's like, oh. You're like Rocky. You know, just bang, bang, bang. Now you can't take it, though. You can't keep moving forward. You're knocked down to the mat. But that's not where he stops. James chapter 4, verse 6. He gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And he will exalt you. Can you imagine if we really believed that? The happiness professor would stop asking her question as an either or. Is it the beliefs or the actions? If we lived like this, if we would humble ourselves before the Lord, if we would recognize and live out fully in the presence of the world and in our own congregation, in our own midst, if we would live out the fact that our belief in Jesus and our interest in the Scriptures is more than an intellectual conviction, it's more than a set of principles that we in our own effort apply and say things will go well with me if I just train up my child in the way he should go. It's a punch list like a contractor would make. And if I do this, 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 and this, he'll be satisfied with me. If we would listen to what the Scriptures say, to say, you know what? It is not merely the stuff that's in our heads. What we need is this life-transforming presence of God, and it's only going to come as we humble ourselves. And maybe some of you need to do that for the first time. Maybe you keep trying to please the Lord and you're so utterly discouraged because you keep failing and you think you're a failure. Yes, you kind of are, but that's not the end of the story. This is why Jesus came. That He would live for you. Completely fulfilling God's punch list. This, do this, do this, do this, this. And then he would die as your substitute on the cross that you don't have to pay that penalty because you didn't do any of those things, but in fact violated them all in word, thought, and deed by what you did and what you didn't do. And the way you receive that is just to humble yourself and say, that's what I need. Jesus, would you make that count for me? And to pray just that. A lot of us need to recognize, you know what? We need to keep praying that prayer. We've all sinned against each other in these last two years in so many ways, in the ways we've handled things and not handled things, done things and not done things. And we need to repent of our own actions. We need to recognize how we've failed 
And it's not all failure. It's not all been failure. It's not a reason to beat ourselves up. But for us to move forward, it's always going to start from that humility. For us to find the power of God, for us for us to actually begin to control our tongues, including asking for forgiveness, including extended forgive, extending forgiveness, including stopping things that we just beat to death and things that we don't speak of at all, maybe saying them. If we're going to do that, if, if we're going to not only control our tongues, but we're going to demonstrate love and concern for others, no matter how we've failed, if we're going to construct express concern in a way that's not just about making me feel better, but actually helping and drawing near, you know, for us to do those kind of things, for us to actually choose the Lord, it's not going to come naturally. It's going to come prayerfully. It's going to come with a heart that is recommitted to Jesus. And it's such a beautiful thing that in God's providence, he put this text here today because we're about to come to the Lord's table for communion for the Lord's Supper, and it is a demonstration of exactly what we need, which is to receive with the empty hand the body and blood of Jesus, to say, this, this is what I need, this is what nourishes me, this is what transforms me, this is what will make me different. And to, as that energy comes to me in faith, believing in His promises and trusting Him for the future, I will be transformed. I will be a different man, a different woman. I will head forth with new commitment. And when I fail, which I will, I will repent and seek the Lord. And the devil will flee from me. And relationships will be restored and reconciled. That's, this is the gospel. These three dimensions... And if you take nothing else away, take that away. That you know what? This week, as things happen, I'm going to reflect on me, self. What am I contributing? What, what can I control? And how am I trying to grow? Do you have a plan? Think about it. What are my areas of sin and temptation? And what am I going to do this week to combat them? Trusting that the Holy Spirit wants to do just that and work in and through me. S. Oh, how, how am I going to focus and concern on others? Who am I praying for? What do people around me need? What would I be experiencing if I was them? What do they actually need? And then above it all is God. See, I will choose the Lord. I will engage Him. I will put Him first in all of those things. I'll read the scriptures. Maybe just start with, you know, I'm going to bump it up a couple of minutes a day if I'm reading every day. I'm going to bump it up one more day if I'm pretty random. Maybe I'll just, maybe just one day this week, I'm going to spend some time in the Word. Oh man, if we do that, if we do that, we would rehabilitate the word religion. we would be happy. <laughs> we would be content. We would be satisfied. We would be drawing people to Jesus.
we would see relationships restored, our community transformed, not overnight in any one of us, right? But man, if that's our direction that's shining that kind of light, oh man. And I think the Lord wants to do just that. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for giving greater grace. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for, for your, your grace that you would come and humble yourself that we might live that you would come and give yourself over to death, that we might be transformed and changed. That you might send the Holy Spirit into our hearts, that we would have hope and a future. You would seal us for eternity. Lord, do that work in us. Lift up those who are discouraged and spending too much time on their sin. Lift up those, O oh Lord, who, who need your encouragement. Humble those whose pride has gotten the better of them. And Lord, work it all together for our good and your glory. And we believe in your great grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.